This is episode number 259 with computer vision expert, Stephen Welch. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 40 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel, AI thought leader, Ben Taylor, data science influencer, Randy Lau, data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer, founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadie Bremer, technology futurist Publis Holman, and many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers, and you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're executive listening to this, check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on this episode because today we've got a very exciting, energetic, pumped up, and informative episode prepared for you. On the show today, I had Stephen Welch, who is a professor, a consultant, a YouTube celebrity in the space of machine learning, data science, computer vision, and many other things, and the chat was incredible. We literally just got off the phone and I am so pumped for you to hear this. So this podcast has a few parts. At the start, we talked about self-driving cars. You will learn pretty much everything you need to know about self-driving cars, starting from the history of neural networks and how that was associated with self-driving cars from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and all the way until now. Uh, you'll also learn about autonomous driving and the three components in the neural networks related to autonomous driving and what they are and how they work. 
you will uh, find out about the five different levels of autonomous driving and where Tesla sits, where Audi sits, where Waymo sits and where other companies are playing this field and what to expect in the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, you'll learn about the trolley problem and much, much more. This podcast is pumped with information about self-driving cars. Then we move on to Steven's day job where he is a consultant in the space of computer vision and machine learning in addition to being a professor at a local university. So as you can imagine, you'll learn a ton. He'll actually share a case study of how machine learning and neural networks can be applied to historically older industries which are a bit slow to pick up on these technologies but that creates a lot of opportunities for data scientists and finally we'll finish up with some very valuable career advice for those of you in the space of data science and AI which I'm assuming is everybody. So a very exciting podcast coming up before we dive straight into it I wanted to give a shout out to our fan of the week this one goes to Wilson Valley. Uh, who said, great resources, valuable information, weekly wonderful guests on the show. Thank you very much, Wilson. And if you haven't left a review yet, then head on over to iTunes or your podcast app and you can leave us a review there. I'd love to personally read it. On that note, let's dive straight into the world of self-driving cars, neural networks, machine learning, and much, much more. And without further ado, I bring to you Stephen Welch. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And with me today, I have Stephen Welch calling in all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina. Stephen, welcome to the show. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure, seriously, because as we were talking before the podcast, I magically realized that the way I encountered your work was when I was learning about AI myself and I needed to find some insights into neural networks and i came across your youtube videos which are totally fantastic man huge congratulations on the way you like really simplify things and share that on youtube thank you so much for that oh thank thank you um how, how did, tell us a bit about yourself like how did you even get into this um space of neural networks and like for those of our listeners who haven't encountered your channel by the way steven's channel is extremely popular with uh hundreds of thousands of subscribers and millions of views uh, but in case somebody hasn't uh, heard about your work before, tell us a bit about yourself, please. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, so the channel is called uh, Welch Labs, um, and I kind of got into it a little bit haphazardly. Um, it's a little bit difficult to describe how different the landscape of machine learning education was in 2013 and 2014. Mm. Um, there's so many good resources now. It's 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 wild how you know it's you can learn what you need really really quickly. Um, so, you know, in, in around in 2012, I launched a startup with a good friend um, and we were using neural networks to try to build a better uh, a better tool for musicians, basically, for uh, guitar players. Mm. Um, and it was all about neural networks. We thought this was a really important technology. Um, and part of doing that, I had to train some neural networks from scratch, you know, on, on our own data sets. And we started that work in 2012. And, you know, if you think about the year 2012, um, that's an important year. It's the year the the AlexNet paper came out. So I'm mm. sure some of your listeners are aware of this paper. So it was kind of the the first really big landmark results in modern deep learning. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the technology had been there before, but um, the AlexNet paper just crushed this ImageNet benchmark basically. And that's when when you know modern deep learning as it is now, especially for computer vision, uh, really came on the scene. What, was that? Uh, but anyway, was yeah, that by Jan LeCun? 
Um, so that is the uh, the big PI on there. I believe it's Joshua Bingio, I mm. believe, is the last author. Uh, the first author is uh, Alex Travinsky. Mm -hmm. uh, he's at Google now. Um, but uh, yeah, the paper is, it, it's definitely worth a read. Um, and not just for historical reasons, really for it, it, a lot of the, you know, the findings are still pretty relevant today. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll get back to your question here. I'm getting a little sidetracked about <laughs> some of the cool, cool things that were going on there about how I got into this. Um, so anyway, the, the point I was kind of driving at here is, you know, um, as these new neural network and deep learning methodologies are coming around, the tools themselves and the academic literature and the, the textbooks and the, you know, the, 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 the tools you had to learn this stuff as, a, as an engineer uh, were pretty limited. Um, so I ended up, you know, I needed to use neural networks. Um, there was a couple libraries, um, one of them, so I believe CAFE was around. Um, mm. So CAFE is kind of like a TensorFlow precursor, I would, I would call it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there was Theano. So there were some old frameworks, they're in C++, they're, for me, is, you know, I don't have a CS background, so really tough to learn. And then as far as, you know, literature, there was some stuff from Stanford, Andrew Wu was doing some work, but um, either way, the bottom line here was, it was really tough for me to learn neural networks. It took me a whole summer. So, <laughs> so all summer I'm sitting there trying to learn the differential equations, trying to code it up. I ended up, you know, making my own little simple library in Python, just because that was kind of all that, you know, I had that I could really make work for me. And when I finally got through, I thought, man, you know, I should really just spend a little bit of time and try to make a resource for other people. So, you know, at least my efforts won't only be, you know, um, siloed in my little area of working. Um, so, also and, and you time, also and you yeah. also learn better when you explain things to others, right? I think there's tremendous value in, like, I would call it pedagogical thinking, right? Mm. So, the I think Richard Feynman is probably my favorite example <laughs> of this. <laughs> I think I think the action yeah. of explaining something, especially for uh, for me, for sure. The action of explaining something helps me understand it. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think thinking like that is really, really valuable. For sure. And um, and if anybody's interested more about Richard Feynman, a great book is uh, "You Must Be Kidding, Mr. Feynman." I think. It's oh a yeah. Autobiography. Fantastic. You read yes, it? Yeah. I have. Yeah. Highly I, recommended. Yeah. I loved it. It's so funny. You know, it's about yeah. quantum physics and stuff, but it's so mm -hmm. funny at the same time. It's ridiculous. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a quasi autobiography. It's just him telling his stories, basically. Yeah, yeah. He's a character and just, just an inspirational person, I think. You know, I just, I just love his, his attitude, you know. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Um, so about that time, you know, I'd finished, I at least had a grasp on neural networks myself. And at the same time, you know, some of these early YouTube channels were really getting some traction. So I was in love at the time, I still am, with a channel called Minute Physics. Uh, the author is Henry Reich. It's, it's a really great channel. I encourage you to watch it. Just great, great topics, great content on physics. And I thought, okay, I am going to rip off Henry Reich. I'm going to try to steal <laughs> as much of his production as I can. I'm going to copy his production as best I can. Um, and I'm going to make it about neural networks. Now. Mm. So I was like, I'm just going to do it, see what happens. Let's try it. Let's release a video. Um, so it took a few months to kind of figure things out. And making videos is, a, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, it's a, a long and slow and tedious process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I finally finished. I released episode one. Um, and the next morning, literally, I woke up the next morning and it had uh, a thousand views. And I was wow. like, wow, that's, that's way more than I thought, you know. And really, in 2014 or 2013, it was an easier time on YouTube and Twitter. You know, there was less good content, less competition, you know. Um, so that grew really quickly, and that became a, a six or seven part series that I made on neural networks. Um, and that, that series, I think episode one now has like 600,000 views, which is <laughs> crazy. I think yeah. that's uh, mind blowing to me, right? Yeah. Um, but that's how I got into, into YouTube. And that was a lot of that, uh, you know, that was some of my earlier education in machine learning as well. You know, I, I did machine learning research in graduate school before that. Um, but that was the first time I got really deep into the, you know, inner workings of an algorithm, I would say. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, wow, what 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 a journey! And um, and did you continue creating videos from there after the six part uh, neural network series? I did. Yeah, it's kind of like you know you you have an a, an early success and then it kind of like it's a you'll see this with bands a lot. A lot of bands will have an early like hit and then they kind of freak out and they're like, oh, what do I do next? And kind of the pressure's on a little bit. Yeah. So I kind of you know floundered around a little bit. I did a series on I forget something on physics that was okay. And then I eventually landed on imaginary numbers. And this is not a machine learning data science topic, but um, it's just a beautiful topic for mathematics and something I'd always been interested in. Um, I, you know, my one of my first engineering loves was music and audio, and um, the a really important piece of mathematics in music and audio, but also in vision, uh, is the Fourier transform. Hmm. Um, if you look at the Fourier transform equation, right in the center is this imaginary number i. Mm-hmm. Um, and I set out to make a series about um, about the Fourier transform. I was very gung ho. I was going to knock it out in a summer, you know, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> and I realized I really didn't understand what the I was doing in Fourier's equation. Mm-hmm. Um, so this got me deeper and deeper into some research, and eventually it turned into a, a 13 part series on imaginary numbers, um, which now it's my most popular series. Now it has, I think, the first episode has three million views or something wild. Wow! Um, and I've spoken. Thank you. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of teachers that actually use it as part of high school education, which is really cool. Um, I spent, you know, a whole summer working on this uh, this one animation where I pulled this graph out of a page to kind of share this concept. Um, you know, super time consuming, uh, but in the end, definitely worthwhile. You know, and that's kind of where the channel went next. After that, I did another machine learning series about uh, decision trees, um, but it's definitely been a journey. Um, I'd say that it uh, it's certainly been worthwhile, really, really time consuming and, uh, you know, uh, definitely a, you don't know what you expect when you get into it, but it's definitely been rewarding, I would say. Yeah. And uh, for list- listeners out there, we'll link to uh, the imaginary numbers. So we'll link to the neural network video part one and also to the imaginary numbers are real part one. Highly recommend checking out uh, that one. I like I've seen that video. It's like really it's surreal how you move around, you know. Um, the graphics, it's its like augmented reality with your hand at the same time. And right, yeah. and also part 13 is really cool. Like that's a really advanced one. So for yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. people check it out. Okay, cool. So and then you moved on to um, uh, some uh, decision trees. Now you're more into self-driving cars at the moment, like your latest series, right? Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I think that self-driving cars are just one of the most interesting applied machine learning or AI problems really of our time. Uh, I think these are going to have a, a huge impact in our day-to-day life. Um, so, you know, and, and recently, you know, in the last couple of years, I had a chance to actually work on these as part of my, my day job. Um, so as I was doing that kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, man, there's so many cool stories I could tell. Um, so that eventually became, you know, this most recent series. Um, and I really tried to go back into the history. Uh, I think the history is really, really fascinating. It really started back in the in the wow. 1980s. Um, yeah, wild, right? Yeah. So actually, one of the first. So if you go back to Carnegie Mellon, so Carnegie Mellon, 1986. So I was born in 1987. So I was I was negative one at this time. <laughs> so I think I think 1986. I think that's when Richard Feynman died. Actually, that wow. same year. So Richard Feynman. That's I know, right? Trying trying to tie the whole yeah. timeline together here. So I was born the next year. Um, so at Carnegie Mellon, this is when Jeff Hinton, uh, kind of the godfather of neural networks, he's at Carnegie Mellon as an associate professor, and he publishes a paper called, you know, um, uh, Learning Representations by Backpropagating Errors, something like that. It's it's in Nature. It's like the yeah, backpropagation yeah. paper. I think I've read the, that one. The, the reason it's, oh, cool, yeah, the, it's it's pretty mm-hmm. readable. Um, and the the important result there is that they were able to le- train neural networks that were more than one mm-hmm. layer deep. Um, so before, you know, the, the, the dominant paradigm was a, a perceptron, 
and that's like a one layer neural network. Um, and those worked reasonably well, but there was this big book that came out in the 70s from, uh, from Marvin Minsky and Seymour Pay Parrot at MIT, basically, you know, basically bashing perceptrons and saying there's all these problems that single layer neural networks, also known as perceptrons, uh, And perceptrons solve. have been around um, since like so the 60s, in, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, goes back to I think Frank Rosenblatt was the big uh, proponent of perceptrons. There's some I, I I give a lecture about this in my computer vision class. There's some really great old historical stuff. I want to make a video out of it, but basically, like in the '60s, so Frank Rosenblatt he figured out what's called the perceptron learning algorithm, which is how you can train a one-layer mm -hmm. neural network. Um, and he basically claimed that it could solve like, any problem. So he went out to the press and he was like, "Oh, it can tell the difference between cats and dogs and do this and that," you know. Um, I was able to dig up some old quotes from the New York Times. They're pretty, they're pretty mm. ridiculous. Um, so I'm ho hoping to use them in a future video. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that, that's the one layer uh, mm -hmm. neural network. Um, and then, so, so basically now just input layer, output layer, no hidden layers in between. That's right, mm -hmm. zero hidden layers. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so you just have one weight matrix you're multiplying yep. by in there. Um, Maybe a set of biases, but yeah, so just, mm -hmm. just one layer, exactly, uh, input, output. Um, so that was in the 60s, uh, and in the 70s, you neural networks kind of went out of style, and they came back in the 80s, thanks largely to this work at uh, mm -hmm. Carnegie Mellon uh, by Jeff Fenton and David mm -hmm. Rumelhart. Um, and what I was getting here, so this will come back to autonomous drafting, mm -hmm. I promise. <laughs> um, so the, um, this paper came out in 1986, and it was how can we train multi-layer mm -hmm. neural networks, uh, called at the time called multi-layer perceptrons. And, and really, you know, not that different than today's deep mm -hmm. learning models. Really not that different at all. Um, the math is almost identical. Um, so that was 1986. And at the same time, there was a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon, this guy named Dean Pomerlo. Um, I had a chance to speak with him. He's, he's mm -hmm. the nicest guy. Um, so at the same time, he, he came to Carnegie Mellon and he started working on, on robots, on self-driving robots and cars. Um, and I guess he had enough contact with Hinton's group that he thought, okay, maybe I could use a neural network to drive a car. And that was kind of the, the impetus. So really one of the first successful applications of multi-layer neural networks was self-driving mm. back in the 80s. Wow. Um, it's pretty, pretty wild, right? Because you would think they would use it to solve some yeah. problems, right? Like, you know? um, so I thought that was just, just fascinating. So in the in this series, this most recent series, I really get into the history. There's actually a little clip of me talking on the phone to Dean Pomerlo, oh, and nice. he explains kind of his thinking through this. You know, yeah, it was it was cool to you know get to talk to some of these people who were really you know kind of the pioneers. Um, so we talk about that technique. Um, that technique is called end-to-end -end deep learning. That's where you use one neural network to learn the whole driving wow. behavior, right? Where uh, it actually learns the angle to turn the steering wheel at. Um, which is, it's incredible that it works. And, and actually, NVIDIA recently, just in 2016, uh, they released a paper where they did the same thing with a much deeper mm -hmm. model. Um, and their network does incredibly well. It, it drives across all different kinds of terrains and roads really, really well. Um, the big catch, and I get into this in the series a little bit, um, is that these end-to-end -end systems where you use one neural network to drive the whole car, um, they're really hard yeah. to test, right? So in, in autonomous driving, the other reason it's a really hard problem is because of safety and reliability yeah. concerns. Um, so if you have this big monolithic neural network, you know, it's really hard to make it reliable. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of get into that in the series as well. So I think, I think I got a little bit off topic, but that's the uh, that's a little summary of the most, most recent No, that's series. really cool. And it's very different to uh, models that are like, recently coming out. Like, have you had a chance to look at the full world model? Yeah. Yeah, that one has um, variable autoencoders, uh, for instance, for like recreating 
different uh, scenarios for self-training the model. It's got an MDN and R MDN RNN for predicting the future. And then like all of that is combined into one model and separated into parts so that training can be facilitated by a controller and made like uh, can we it can go through faster training things like that so completely different style now you have models with multiple neural networks working together to accomplish a common goal and uh, perhaps yeah it's like it's the future since they're faster to train and more more reliable i guess right and i think the other big thing that makes these i'm just looking at the paper now i'm, I'm catching up a little bit here but uh, i think the other big thing is that with these techniques um, a big challenge in autonomous driving, so generally you can divide autonomous driving into three big areas. So one is the perception, you know, the computer vision perception algorithms. Um, one is the um, the uh, mapping, so localization, knowing where you are in the world. And the third is planning and policy. Um, so a lot of the leaders in the field think that this third, this planning and policy piece, which is kind of how do you actually interact with other drivers and mm -hmm. things like that, um, they think it's the hardest. And mm -hmm. I, I agree. Um, and one of the reasons it's so hard is because it's very difficult to solve with offline machine mm -hmm. learning. Um, so if you're solving a perception problem, for example, you can record a bunch of data of driving and you can label all the cars and you can teach an object detector to uh, detect your cars, mm -hmm. no problem. Um, the problem with planning and policy is that there's this feedback loop. So if I make a decision in my car about how to drive, then another driver is going to respond mm -hmm. to that, right? So if I just capture data mm -hmm. offline, then I'll only have one version of the world, yeah. right? So when you want to train these, these modules, these systems that have to deal with, you know, an interactive world, then the reinforcement learning uh, becomes much, much more important. And I, th I think that's what this world model is I, getting at a little bit, I think, but I, I just looked at the paper very mm. briefly. Um, but those things are super relevant. Interesting. Sure. And so what's a role do you think? So when you, when you talk about um, offline learning, is like, for instance, we put a camera in a car and like we drive for, you know, 100 kilometers, we collect all that data, and then we train our model on that. Cool. But like, as you mentioned, it's not good enough or when the algorithm actually makes decisions and other drivers react and so on. So what role do you think simulations play in this whole space? How reliable and realistic are simulations when we hear that Tesla's cars did you know, a billion miles in simulation or, or some other crazy number? Is that comparable to real life conditions? Yeah, wonderful question. Yeah, so simulation, I think, is a really important piece of the puzzle. I don't think it solves everything by any means. Um, I think you'd be foolish not to do it because, like, as you said, the simulators are getting are getting mm -hmm. very good. Um, there's one quote that always comes to mind when I talk about or think about simulation, um, and it's from he's kind of a character. So the guy's name is uh, George Hotz. Are you are you no, aware no. of this guy? <laughs> okay, cool. So um, he was the first person to actually hack the um, the iPhone and the PlayStation. So he's kind of like <laughs> nice. a hacker. I, I, I've like, heard of that uh, the the person like I've heard of that happening, but I didn't know who 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 did it. Yeah, yeah. So it's this guy named George Hotz. I've actually I've had a little interaction with him through the a company I used to work for. Really, just a character, you know, brilliant, brilliant guy, obviously. Um, so after he kind of you know retired from being a hacker, I guess, or at least on paper mm -hmm. retired, um, he he founded an autonomous driving car uh, company in uh, in 2015, I think, called Comma.ai. Um, so he raised some money from Anderson Horowitz, which is you know a great VC in the Valley. Um, and you know, worked on autonomous driving and they made a product and all kinds of stuff. Um, but anyway, the, he has a great quote about simulation, which is he said, he said, all simulators are doomed to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> which I think what he means by that, right, is that you know, you, um, 
you can you can overfit your models to your simulation. You know, your models are only going to be as good as your simulator. And if your simulator was in fact as real as the real world, then you know th that's actually uh, some people argue it's a harder task to make a simulator as real as the real world than it is to just learn from the real world. Um, so I, I think that there are real limitations to simulators. But again, in autonomous driving, especially, you'd be foolish not to use them because any, anything that can make your product safer, you should you should absolutely use. Um, and what's becoming common, you know, I mentioned those three pillars of autonomous driving: the the sensing, the and perception, the uh, localization, and the planning and policy. What you're seeing is people are using simulation more for the planning and policy to really model the agent-agent interaction, and then they are using real data more often for the perception, which which really makes sense because um, the for computer vision problems, for example, having real data out in the world is really really valuable because the the I think the theory is the probability distribution that that data comes from is really really complex and difficult to, to mm -hmm. simulate. Interesting. And what would you what are your comments on the differences between the types of self-driving vehicles, for instance, as I've heard, uh, Google Waymo uses LIDARs, so laser um, radars, and uh, whereas Tesla uses just computer vision, just cameras. Uh, any thoughts on that? Benefits? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, I could, I could talk about this for a whole hour. It's, it's a really, <laughs> All right, really in a nutshell, question. in a nutshell. Yeah, of course, I, I won't, I promise, I won't do the whole, whole podcast on this, um, but so the, uh, in a nutshell here, so there is this big difference of opinion mm -hmm. in the industry. Um, and it really boils down to if you're going what's called level mm -hmm. five or you're going kind of level mm -hmm. two up. So the Society of Automotive Engineers has published a, a recommendation which you know, kind of it, it quantizes autonomous driving into levels. Uh, so level one would be like adaptive mm -hmm. cruise control. Uh, level two is what Tesla Autopilot is now. So it does lane mm -hmm. centering and adaptive cruise control together. So it keeps you in the center of your lane and it uh, you know, adjusts your speed so you don't hit the car in front of you. Um, level five on the other end of the spectrum, that is complete autonomy. No steering wheel, no human takeover. Oh, I've, I've seen the infographic um, for that. Like it actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll put it on the show notes as well. It's a really cool illustration. That'd be great. It is, yeah. So you know, that's one way to chop up the world of autonomous driving. And if you chop it up that way, then there are some conclusions that are kind of going to be a result of that. Um, so. As far as I know, there's a really great book that I, I think I read last year. It's called um, it's called Autonomy uh, by Larry Burns, um, and that book kind of gives the history of the Google self-driving mm -hmm. project as part of. The and I think initially, when Google did its you know development in 2013, they had Priuses and they were doing a self-driving car you know project under under Google X, I think. Um, I think internally it wasn't clear to them, you know, which path was right. Should we just go for level five or should we go level mm -hmm. two up? Should we incrementally build our autonomous system or should we go mm -hmm. for the moonshot, right? Um, and they did this kind of infamous experiment now where they, they internally, you know, tested their self-driving cars with their own engineers. So they said, okay, you can use a self-driving car, but make sure you monitor it and that you pay attention, you know, you, you are the, mm -hmm. the fail-safe, you know. Um, and they, they recorded the, you know, they had a cockpit camera and they recorded their engineers and apparently um, their own engineers were terrible at this. They would send text messages and <laughs> food and, you know, they, they really overtrusted these systems. Um, so I think, I'm sure that wasn't the only, uh, only evidence that factored into their reasoning, but at that point, Google really said, and now Waymo is really saying, you know, we're going to go full mm -hmm. level five. Um, we don't think that level two and three can be done mm -hmm. safely because it involves this mm -hmm. handoff and where the, the, the human really is mm -hmm. the failsafe. Um, and they say, you know, we don't think this can be done safely. And a bunch of companies now, Cruise, Aurora, a bunch of companies agree with, with Waymo, and they're doing only level five and mm -hmm. level four. Um, and Tesla is kind of on the opposite end of the market where they're saying, hey, we're going to incrementally add features and make it better and better over time. Um, so those are the 
Yeah, yeah, those are the two really philosophical differences in how you approach the Interesting. problem. Interesting, and which and so yeah. do you think um, it's a uh, it's possible for like is Tesla going to need to introduce radars as well, or is it possible to do the full um, self driving like level five with just video cameras? Yeah, wonderful question. So um, I, I have a little bit on this in, in part one of the series, and I think it's it's just a fascinating yeah. question. So so Elon Musk has said publicly, I mean, at a, at a TED event, and he said this publicly that he thinks the level five is achievable mm -hmm. with cameras. Actually, no, 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 I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't misquote him. He says superhuman performance is achievable mm -hmm. with just cameras. Um, at points, I think you could infer from their marketing that they're claiming level four, level five, with just cameras mm -hmm. eventually. Um, now, right now, they also use radar, so they have radar in in Teslas. Um, Oh, okay. In Tesla's, correct. The, just one radar, um, but the radar makes a big difference because the those two sensors, the passive optical camera and the radar, have kind of uh, orthogonal uh, mm. strengths. So the radar can see, you know, much better at night and much better through fog and stuff like that. And it has a longer range. Um, so those two sensors are very strong together. Um, the big one that's missing that everyone else at the top end of the market, the level five guys, use mm. is lidar. Um, so lidar is where you, you know, you have the spinning uh, disc mm. on top of your car and you bounce lasers off. Uh, everything around you, and you use the time of flight information to uh, make it definite. What does LIDAR stand for? Um, oh yeah, so it's it's kind of a messed up acronym. I think it's it, there's different versions for it. There's no one interpretation, but I think it's light, distance, and ranging. It's it's a playoff mm -hmm. radar, mm -hmm. um, and radar is radio distance mm -hmm. and ranging. I think um, so. It's a much more expensive sensor, uh, tens of thousands of dollars today, uh, coming mm -hmm. down in price. Um, but it's you, you could think of it being two to three orders of magnitude better than a camera uh, right now, um, as far as the, the quality of, of, of mm -hmm. data you're getting. Um, so, so Tesla and Elon Musk, who's much smarter than me, are betting you can do this with camera mm -hmm. and radar. Just, um, just like humans do, right? Like the way we drive cars. It, yeah, and humans don't even have <laughs> radar, right? So I think that, that's probably an important part of his argument is, hey, if, if a human can do it, then it must be mm -hmm. feasible, right? Um, which, uh, you know, that's something that we can debate as well, I think. Um, but there's a bunch of other smart folks, um, like Waymo, you know, who, who think that that's not true necessarily, especially right now. They think that LiDAR is a critical part of mm -hmm. the solution. Um, so it's going to be just fascinating to see how this plays out in the next five to 10 years. Um, I, I've gone back and forth on this personally at least two or three times, you know, what's the right philosophy and what's the right sensor set. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's just a fascinating Interesting, question. very interesting. And so, um, man, you seem to like know so much about self-driving cars. How did you like dive so, how do you dive so deep into these topics? Yeah, well that one I kind of cheated. It was oh, that's my day true. job that's for, true. for a couple of years. So, so yeah, so, you know, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to be in meetings with people in the industry and, you know, um, generally no matter what I'm doing, I try to read a lot of literature if I can. So I've tried to re keep up with the autonomous driving literature as mm -hmm. best I can. Um, so there it was kind of serendipitous where, you know, the stuff on the YouTube channel is connected to what gotcha. I was doing for my day job. And what <laughs> right. was there anything else like really interesting, cool that you can share with us about self-driving cars? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, that philosophical debate about level one versus level five is probably one of the most interesting mm. things. Oh, um, what, what about the, the trolley industry, problem? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's the other big one, right? So, and this actually, it's, Again, it's connected to this philosophical mm -hmm. difference. So, um, right now, you know, as of now, there are uh, I think it's it's three to four fatalities that have happened mm -hmm. in Teslas, arguably when they are in mm -hmm. autopilot. And this isn't exactly the trolley problem, but I think it, I mm -hmm. think it'll connect here. Um, so I, I think 
maybe with the first, because really when you say trolley problem, and I can get into that in more detail, but, but generally maybe these, these philosophical questions about, you know, how do we balance safety versus independence? And what, what I mean by that, like, let's say that tomorrow we had a self-driving car that was 10 times mm -hmm. safer, right, than, than a human driver. Like, it was demonstrably proven. Uh, proving that is hard, but let's say you could. So, you know, last year in the U.S., 30 to 40,000 people died in car accidents, which is heartbreaking. It's terrible. It's the biggest cause of death amongst, I think, I think, uh, but people younger mm -hmm. than 35. I think from the ages of 15 to 35, it's one of the biggest causes of, of, mm -hmm. of death. So you had an algorithm that was 10 times safer, right? We could go from 35,000 deaths a year to 3,500 in the U.S. That'd be huge, right? But the big catch is that those remaining 3,500, those could be caused by machines, mm. right? So as a society, are we, is that a, is that a trade-off that we're willing to make? And I think especially in America, well, at least, you know, I'm biased because that's where I live, but, you know, a lot of people I'm sure would not be comfortable with someone in their family being killed by a machine like that. You know, that's, I'm sure that's true globally, even if it is for a greater societal good, mm. you know? Um, so I think that's another really interesting philosophical question that again is it's really going to play out you're going to see it play out in the next 5 to 10 years yeah man that's that's a very very uh, difficult part for you know for society to decide on these types of things and it's and it, the reason is for these questions is that you will never be able to make self-driving cars that are 100% safe there's always going to be accidents no matter what I believe so. Yeah, there's some folks that I think would debate, but if you just think about being in a, a dense urban area, for example, right? So you have a sidewalk, right? And it is, you know, in some cases, one foot away from traffic that's going, let's say, 35 yeah. miles an hour, right? So uh, uh, conceivably, a pedestrian could jump in front of your car at the very last yeah. second, right? And in, in that situation, the laws of physics themselves won't let you mm -hmm. stop fast enough, right? So there are there's there's something that's intrinsically dangerous about how cars mm. work, right? So I think you can never guarantee 100%. And the, and the whole trolley problem d boils down to, do you, for instance, in situations where like a like a child jumps onto the road or something like that, uh, does the car um, hit the child or does the car swerve off the cliff and kill the passengers inside the car? And so apart from them not ever being 100% safe, there's also this dilemma, who's going to program the algorithms to make that decision does the car protect the pedestrian and decide that they're you know they're under 18 years old they you know who gets priority is it the passengers in the car is it uh, the pedestrian does it depend on their age social status you know other um, characteristics of the person like who somebody has to put that into the ai itself and that's that's i think uh where a lot of debate is happening right now yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a really great paper uh, in Nature where they take a really big poll across the whole the whole world, um, and they ask some questions about like about this, like you know, should we value the the more educated over the less educated, or the wealthy over the less wealthy, or the you know um, the younger over the older? Um, and the answer is actually very pretty heavily based on geography and, mm. and culture, um, which is pretty interesting, I think. You know, so kind of one of the suggestions from that article in Nature was, you know, the, the policies may need to be culturally specific. Very, very different world we're moving into. <laughs> Agreed. And how fast, how fast do you think we're moving into this world? Because I've heard that, I haven't been in one, but I heard there's, in several states in the U.S., there's already self-driving Ubers. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so I I'm going to be a little more skeptical on this stuff, and there's people much smarter than me who think this stuff's going to go faster. So that's my <laughs> that's my disclaimer. 
Um, so, you know, again, there's there's really two ends of the market. There's kind of the level two and up end of the market, which is being led mm -hmm. by Tesla. And there's the level five and and, and down, which is uh, Waymo is really the, the leader. Uh, Waymo is the spin mm -hmm. out of Google. Um, so I think in the next five to 10 years, the level two systems are going to keep getting better, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, Audi has a, in their A8, they have what they're calling a level three system, um, but they have very much constrained what's called the operational design domain of mm -hmm. that system, which means that you can only use it on limited access highways below 30 mm -hmm. miles an hour, I believe is the mm -hmm. constraints, um, which makes it, you know, it makes it an easier engineering problem to solve, which, mm -hmm. which is smart. <laughs> so they won't let you use it outside mm -hmm. of that domain, for example. Um, so those systems, I believe, will continue to get better. And I think you will begin to see level five systems like Uber has worked on and, and Waymo. I think you'll begin to see those deployed in geofenced areas. They were already seeing that in, in Phoenix. So Waymo has a fleet um, that is driving around the streets of Phoenix. Um, now, uh, to be fully level five, you have to be able to drive anywhere. There can't be any you know, geofencing or constraints. I believe that that is still at least 10 years away, maybe wow. 20. Um, I'm a little long on that personally. I could be totally wrong. There's people way smarter than me that are saying faster. Um, I just think that the, because really what Waymo is doing right now is, is level four because there's still constraints on it. You could only be within, you know, this uh, area of Phoenix, for mm -hmm. example. Um, so um, uh, again, I could be totally wrong here. It's my, my personal opinion is that, you know, 10 to 20 years for level five everywhere, but you will continue to see these level two systems get better and better. And you'll see, I think within cities, you'll start to see uh, kind of the robo taxis come come to life um, over the next five to ten wow, years. Fantastic. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for that overview of self-driving cars. Uh, we're gonna link to the videos to the YouTube videos, well, to the first one in the series in the show notes. If somebody, if our listeners, if you want to get more information on this, highly recommend checking them out. And uh, in the meantime, on the podcast, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and let's talk about your you know so your youtube is your hobby all of this that we talked about is just the hobby part of your life <laughs> tell us about about sure. your work so uh as we chatted about mm -hmm. just before the podcast you're a consultant right machine learning computer vision consultant how is that going yeah right yeah thanks for asking yeah so um in uh, the beginning of this year, late last year, I began working on some, a few consulting projects, and that's really picked up some speed, which has been great. Um, I'm a uh, one of my part-time jobs here is I'm, I'm a professor at the local university. Um, so as part of doing that, as part of teaching computer vision, I was able to get uh, connected to the community here in Charlotte, um, and I started learning about really interesting computer vision problems out there. Um, so, for example, one of the uh, early projects we're working on is um, automatic defect detection for uh, manufacturing. Um, so in a lot of manufacturing, you, you would be just, just amazed at how manual some of these processes still are. Um, there are, you know, there's people right now that their job is to find defects mm. in products, you know, and they, they work in 10 hour shifts, 12 hour shifts, and their job is to find those defects. Um, that is a very, very challenging job. Um, and they don't always get it right, which I, I certainly wouldn't. Um, and there are lots of really great ways to blend your humans and your technology in, in more intelligent ways. Not, ne not necessarily eliminating those jobs, but but you know making those jobs better and making those people more effective and in their happier. jobs. Um, exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I would be so that'd be such a challenging uh, a job to have. Um, so one of the first projects we're doing is we're doing uh, automated defect detection using deep learning computer vision models. Hey, so, sorry, um, Stephen. Which has been yeah. So, sorry. Uh, when when you say we're you're you're referring to yourself and your interns, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So Welch Labs, the consulting uh, arm of Welch Labs. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Please continue. Sorry for interrupting. 
Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah. So uh, yeah, when I say we, so me and then uh, we're, we're scaling slowly, you know, these things grow slowly. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so one, one other advantage of teaching uh, at, the, at the local university is being able to make some contacts, you know, so I've, I've identified a couple students that I was really, really impressed by and have, have uh, made a couple uh, part-time hires for now to help me out with algorithm development. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's one of the first projects we're working on is using deep learning to spot uh, defects in manufacturing lines. Um, which I, I think it's going to be a great way to add a lot of value. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, too, how, um, uh, you know, depending on what industry you're in, um, deep learning has been either completely adopted and it's, it's kind of over, <laughs> or it's, it's kind of still new. And, and so far in, in manufacturing, the existing systems we've seen, we've had a chance to look at some existing systems and learn about different processes. And it's going to take some time for these new computer vision machine learning innovations to make it all the way out to some of these older industries, um, which which makes for a lot of opportunity. You know, I think it's a it's an exciting place to be right now. That, that's such a great way of putting it. That um, deep learning is depending on the industry. Deep learning is either completely adopted and it's over. You know, full in quotation marks, meaning like it's it's very hard to add new value with deep right. learning and innovate. Right. Or you right. just go and find an industry that is old and that could benefit from deep learning, and you you know, innovate there. There's a lot of opportunities. And yeah, this is this is such a great example, my manufacturing defects. Like one of my um, you know, when I when I try to explain how can deep learning be applied to an old industry, one of my best um uh, my go-to examples is like let's say you have a conveyor belt and you're sorting apples. Right? You have like five people standing there sorting, okay, which apples go left for the juice, which apples go straight for the um, you know, to be placed in in the market stalls and stuff like that. Well, like they're using their eyes to sort things out, you know, like to decide which ones are like rotten apples, which ones need to be thrown away, which ones are good apples and so on, which ones are big or small. All you need to do is put like a, a camera above the conveyor belt and you don't even need to program anything into it. You put a neural network and you get it to observe the actions of the humans for like two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, two months and learn, you know, the ones and zeros based on the actions and then uh, or based on the sizes of the apples and how they look, and that's it. It'll automatically come up with the criteria, and from there, you know, that's so so much help to the factory, the humans, and uh, it can do that job so much faster. Yeah, it's it's a huge value add. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, you know, machine learning really automates a lot of these processes for you. Um, the one the one caveat there, probably, especially in some of this early work we've done, and kind of what I've seen in the industry, the um, the learning is super automated. What's slow and time consuming and, and still kind of a grind sometimes is really getting good labeled data. Mm. Um, so, you know, these unsupervised algorithms are, are really coming along quickly, which is exciting. But um, in my experience thus far, the, the heavy lifting algorithms today that are really being deployed are by and large supervised. Mm. Um, so with, with the project I just mentioned, you know, most of our time really goes to getting a really good labeled training set. Mm. Um, there's a really great talk from uh, Andrej Kripathi. So he's he's head of machine learning at Tesla now. Oh, um, really? He moved to Tesla? Yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah, he's Interesting. the man. Yeah. So yeah. He has some really great lectures from Stanford. Yeah, yeah. I love his, uh, also his blogs on Medium or wherever else they are posted. And yeah, yeah lectures are great he, as well. He, he wrote a great tool too called uh, Archive Sanity, Sanity Preserver. I'm not sure if you use it or not, but you know, the archive is a great place to get uh uh, papers, early mm -hmm. pre papers, and he wrote a tool called uh, Archive uh, Sanity Preserver, 
And what it does is it kind of like organizes and sorts uh, archive for you. So you can see kind of the most relevant papers. Nice. Um, it's actually my, it's my browser homepage. So I can <laughs> <laughs> kind of see what's going on quickly. Um, but anyway, Andrej Karpathy, obviously brilliant, uh, brilliant engineer. Um, he has a great talk recently out of, uh, from his role at Tesla. Um, and really, he spends almost the whole time talking about how they're dealing with data, labeling data, dealing with ambiguous situations. So for them, you know, they obviously have really cutting edge deep learning models, which is great. But for them to really get to the long tail and really get good performance, um, it's becoming more of a data problem. And I, I've observed that in my own work as well, where we spend more time on labeling and really having internally consistent policies for labeling. Whenever you have more than one human labeling, it gets, mm -hmm. it gets, it gets complicated, right? So um, really some of the challenges are, are kind of shifting there because the algorithms are getting so good that your labels are really the, the bottleneck. Okay, well, help me out then. In, in the example that yeah. I gave with the apples, uh, yeah. could it go with a, an unsupervised algorithm or do you think labeling would be required there as well somehow? Yeah, great question. So you posed it in kind of a cool way. I didn't I didn't think of the way, you, when you first started the example, I was like, oh yeah, it makes sense. But then I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So um, when, let me uh, kind of tease apart what I was thinking versus mm -hmm. what, uh, what you said. Um, so if I had to make an apple sorter, <laughs> yeah. I, would I would probably start, you know, by sitting down with the uh, the team, and I'd probably get them to label their own data set. Mm -hmm. So we take a bunch of images of apples, and I would say, okay, you guys, you know, give me between a hundred and a thousand examples of of this kind of apple, that kind of apple, you know, and we'll go from there. Mm -hmm. um, starting with that manually labeling. I think what you were kind of suggesting is that you use a camera to observe what's happening now in the factory, and that's a really cool idea. Because um, then what you could do, you'd still have to do some some kind of. I think there'd still be some kind of manual component. But you're what you're really saying is that. We want to use this to mimic the decisions the workers made in the first place. Yeah. And instead of having the workers themselves draw bounding boxes around bad apples and images, um, we could actually base this off their actions. Um, and that's a really cool idea. I think you'd have to do something a little bit explicit with, you'd have to detect where the workers are and what decisions they're making, or at least have some way of knowing which apples went where, um, which it, I think what you're proposing is a little more of an end-to-end -end system, which is a really cool idea. Um, in practice, what I've seen is more of the former, where you know you have to sit down and really explicitly draw bounding boxes around your defects or your mm. apples or whatever, and then go from there. And I think what you're describing, I'm sure there's some folks doing it now, and that's probably where the industry is going. I, I hope, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you are doing a more of an end-to-end -end thing, where you're trying to really model what your workers are are doing. Awesome. Thanks for that. Really valuable insights. And um, at this point, I'd like to talk a bit about tools. So, what kind of tools do you use? And Oh, and recently TensorFlow 2.0 was released. Any comments on that? Yeah, that's a great topic. Yeah, another one that I could talk about for, <laughs> for a whole podcast. Um, tools are really interesting, and we're seeing a lot of uh, movement really, really quickly. Um, so kind of like I, I think I, I spoke about this a little bit at the beginning. You know, when I first got into machine learning, the it's difficult to describe how much harder the tools were to use. And this, that was 2012. You know, the, mm -hmm. the world has really changed in six or seven years. Um, so, so now, you know, I'd say Python is by far my most comfortable language. I kind of think in Python. Um, if Python ever goes out of out of vogue, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> it's going to be pretty obsolete. Um, but within Python, you know, I, my most comfortable deep learning framework is, is certainly TensorFlow. Hmm. Um, I've been getting into some Keras recently. Keras just makes some things a lot easier, which is great. And and now you can really blend those two together. Um, TensorFlow 2.0 is very very exciting. I think they're going in the right direction for sure. Mm -hmm. um, the couple of experiments I've done with it so far, I, I haven't, you know, no, nothing seems, uh, 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 my, I, I wasn't blown away, not in a negative way, just it seemed it seemed fairly similar to what was going on before. They now have eager execution and things like that, which is cool. And I think they're going in, the, in a good direction and spending a lot of time on it. 
Um, I hadn't spent much time with PyTorch until recently, um, and I, I really liked it so far. I think as someone who you know um, really enjoys the Python syntax, I think PyTorch is a little bit easier to get into, um, and it's also a very powerful framework. I think I think if you're going to only bet on one, I, I tell my students this, you know, I'd probably bet on on TensorFlow and Keras to learn first. That's going to be the most adaptable. I think there's probably more open source work than in TensorFlow and Keras right now than in PyTorch. Mm -hmm. um, but they're both really great frameworks, and 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 you know, neither is too tough to learn. Uh, TensorFlow can be hairy. There's some really really gross error messages that, that TensorFlow will give you sometimes, you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think TensorFlow 2.0 is interesting, and, and just generally the amount of effort being put into these tools is is really exciting. It's so much easier to to build one deep learning model and then compare a hundred different models, you know, by doing hyperparameter tuning than there were five or six years ago. Gotcha. And uh, how difficult is it to get started for somebody listening to this podcast who's never done deep learning before, and with how far we, far we've advanced with these tools? How long would you think it would take somebody to get into this? Yeah, that's a really great question. So this is something that, you know, as, as a professor of computer vision, I think that I think about this a lot or I, I try to. Um, and also as someone who's interviewed a, a reasonable number of, of folks who are looking for jobs in this field, um, I quickly try to figure out if they have, because a lot of people will put TensorFlow on their resume, which is which is fine. Mm. Um, but it, it's really easy to go walk through tutorials. You know, there's all these amazing notebooks right now and you can solve really challenging problems that would have been, you know, uh, really difficult to solve five years ago just by, you know, pressing uh, control enter mm -hmm. <laughs> through your note notebook sales, which is cool. Um, but something I'll try to tease apart really quickly when I'm interviewing someone is, hey, you know, have they gone beyond the tutorial, right? Did they really get stuck on something? Did they do something novel? Um, so, and I know your, so your question here is, you know, how long does it take? And I'd say that, you know, you can go run these tutorials in, in no time. Um, I would say when you're able to really create something new and create some value is when, you know, that's when you probably really start to know something. And that I would think, you know, probably in, in, a, in a focused summer, three months or something like that, you can really start to solve some real problems. And what's really important, I think, is to, instead of, uh, the, the field is super overwhelming right now. I, I struggle to keep up with the literature. There's, there's so many new papers, so many new ideas. And at some point, you really have to just say, okay, I'm going to do this one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to build something myself. It's going to break. That's good. And so getting stuck and having stuff break, is it's, that's the only way you're really going to get deep enough. Um, and, and yeah, I think you have to just stop, focus on one thing. And if you have a, a toy problem or a problem that you're interested in, that's so much better. Um, there's this really great quote from Richard Feynman, actually, tying, mm. tying back to Richard Feynman. It's on my, it's on my homepage right now. And it's, it's a steady hard what interests you in the most undisciplined, irreverent, and original manner possible, which I think that for me, you know, that's the way to learn, you know, so get in there, look at the tutorials, start there, but use it as your starting point. And then, and then from there, try to really build something, you know, and you're going to get stuck and it's going to be crappy for a while, but really that's how you're going to learn these things. And yeah, thanks to these, these tools being out there, I really think in, in, you know, in three months, you can really start to get deep into, into solving some real problems, especially if you have some coding background. Yeah, wow. Couldn't put it better. I totally agree. And that's how, for me personally, it's happened every time that uh, only when I have a problem that really excites me and I can just like work day and night on it and spend a couple of weeks persevering and like write thousands of lines of code, that's when you actually make huge strides of progress as opposed to, you know, like, yes, it's important to follow tutorials, important to get the basics and understand how to use things. Uh, but then you need to practice this. It's like, it's like learning a language. You know, you learn totally. the, yeah. the, you know, how to speak, say certain words. But if, if you keep it only just in the classroom, you're never going to be 
like fluent. You need to go out there and just force yourself to practice. And you're gonna fail. You're gonna fail a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had a uh, back in undergraduate and sophomore year. I was you know 19 years old, and a professor gave us this exact spiel. You know, I think it was a class called it was thermodynamics, which is a really really tough class. Mm. Um, and I remember rolling my eyes. I was like, oh, that's stupid. And he, <laughs> he was he was so right, man. He was 100 percent right. And that was a really tough class. And hopefully, I learned something. But yeah, it's 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 super true. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen. So. Uh, getting towards the end of this podcast, I wanted to ask yeah. you, what uh, from like you're a professor, you're a consultant, you're an educator on YouTube. You see a lot in the space of data science and artificial intelligence, neural networks. Uh, what is like the one biggest tip or piece of advice you can give to our listeners about the future of this field for the next three to five years? What should they look into to be best prepared, to be best positioned for the future that's coming? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think, you know, um, it's exciting to be part of a field that is so popular right now. So data science, machine learning, AI, all these things are really in a big upswing, which is great. Um, it's good because there are new opportunities. You know, there's a, a lot of momentum in the field. At the same time, that means there's a lot of hype, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of things are going to get exaggerated. Um, so I, I think as a practitioner, especially if you're new, um, it's going to be really important to, to focus. Um, I've, I've done a lot of interviews with, with students or, or early, people earlier in their career who they just know the very first, they, they, they know the Twitter version of everything. You know, they're like, oh, this team did this at this place with NLP, blah, blah, blah you know, which is, which is cool. It, it's great to like, you know, know about the industry. That's fantastic. But, but you got to have some depth, right? And, and, and to have depth, you're going to have to sacrifice some breath. Um, unless you're just amazingly brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you're if you're if you're like me and you're you're smart, but you're not a genius, then you're going to have to to, to focus, right? So um, I think I'd really encourage people to to pick a domain, something you're interested in, something where you think you can provide value. Maybe it has connection to work you've done in the past. Uh, maybe it has connection to where you want to go. Um, but pick one of those areas and really really get deep. Build something yourself. Uh, share some open source code. Write some code. Um, I think that's that's really critical because there's if you just try to keep up to date on Twitter or keep up to date with archive, uh, you will just you'll just drown. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's it's impossible. <laughs> Fantastic. So it's it's kind of like it's great to know all the most cutting edge tools and know about them and what they're called and even maybe how they're uh, used and coded. But you gotta have the substance, right? You gotta have the applications you some tangible applications that you can see not even just show others but see for yourself that yes i've actually made a difference using this certain tool so that's a good tool to know to have all right moving on to the next one what what else can i actually create with and make things happen with Absolutely. Yeah. I know when I'm hiring, I'm going to choose depth over breadth almost every time, especially as long as the depth is close enough to what I'm trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, if you've gone, if someone's gone deep into a discipline and they can really solve some of the core problems, then, then I know that they can learn new things as well. You know, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that depth is so critical. And I would say that if you're trying to kind of allocate your time, uh, I would really recommend spending five to 10 times as much effort and time on depth than on knowing everything that's happening in the industry, because mm. um, yeah, it's just it's just it's just so much. And and honestly, a lot of it is noise. A lot of the stuff happening right now is not going to matter in five years, um, which is just it, it it's just I think it's just how these things go. We're in this big upswing. You know, this is a really popular area, and that's okay. Just don't let it don't let it uh, don't let it take too much of your time. <laughs> True, and I just want to reiterate, like you you mentioned this, but just to say it again, you can't go deep into everything. You can like, go broad, mm -hmm. but then you have to pick where you're going to go deep. 
Well, the yeah. best way to pick where you're going to go deep is not what the hype is about, is actually what you're passionate about. Like when totally. you started, you were passionate about music and neural networks, right? So yep. pick mm -hmm. a topic and go deep there. You never know what it'll where it'll take you. You might change direction along the way. But as long as you pick what you're passionate about, you go that direction, well, guess what? The thing that you get deep in is going to be your passion. And therefore, when you do find the right fit for your skills, the company, um, the organization, the consulting firm that needs those skills, you're, you're going to end up working on what you're passionate about anyway. And that's, that's a perfect setup. Totally, totally. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for today, for all the insights. It's been a crazy ride of a podcast from self-driving cars to consulting to education to, um, you know, future of the field. Before I let you go, um, what's the best way for our students to or listeners to get in touch, follow your career, get uh, familiar with more of your work? Yeah, great. So the um, Twitter handle is just at Welch Labs. That's W-E-L-C-H uh, Labs, L-A-B-S. Um, the YouTube channel goes under the same name. If you just Google Welsh Labs, you'll find you'll find all these things. Awesome. Uh, LinkedIn's okay to connect as well? Of course. Perfect. Uh, we'll share all those in the show notes as well. And uh, one final question for you today. What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners to help them in their careers and life journeys? Oh, man, this is a tough one. So I, I'm a connoisseur of engineering and, and math books. I think I own like 200 books or something silly at this point. Um, but there, there's around six or seven that I find to be fantastic. And I think just that one, Stephen. just one, here it comes, here it comes. So for this audience, I think the answer is the deep learning book by Ian Goodfellow. So there's, you know, there's five or 10 deep learning books right now. This one is in my mind by far the, the best. Which you can, I think, get free on the, on the web, right? You can, yep. You can buy it on Amazon for 60 bucks or something, or you can, it's, it's all online as well. Okay, perfect. Well, it's, uh, I've, I've uh, looked at a few chapters through the book. Definitely a great read. So the deep learning book by Ian Goodfellow. On that note, Stephen, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure our listeners did too. Great. Thank you so much for your time. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. What a podcast. Such a charged up conversation. I totally, totally enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. My personal favorite takeaway was perhaps what Stephen said about um, deep learning and how it can be applied to pretty much two types of areas or two types of industries. Industries where it's been completely adopted and it's all over, quote in quotation marks, where basically it's very hard to innovate with deep learning and neural networks because it, those technologies are quite well adopted there already. And other industries where they're, they've been a bit slow taking on these new technologies. And the fact is that there's plenty of industries out there. We just looked at one of the examples where um, uh, on the conveyor belts, you might want to look at defects and use computer vision for that. There's plenty and plenty of industries out there. And that's actually a good thing. That means there's a lot of opportunities and the world's going to become a much, much better place over the coming years. So there you go. That was my best takeaway. And of course, there was plenty of valuable insights. So I wouldn't be surprised if your best takeaway was a bit different. And of course, if you want to get in touch with Steven, if you would like to invite him to do a consulting project for your business, you'd like to follow his career, you'd like to um, watch some of his YouTube videos, all of that information can be found in the show notes at www.superdatascience.com slash 259. That's superdatascience.com slash 259. 
So make sure to hit Steven up and follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter and let him know what you thought of this podcast. I'm sure he would love to hear from you. And on that note, if you know somebody who's interested in self-driving cars, even if they're not a data scientist, even if they're not into artificial intelligence as a profession, send them this podcast. I'm sure they will appreciate all of the insights that Steven shared on this episode. And with that said, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing. Happy analyzing.